I attended several occasions like today's with Shabtai and became aware that he had little time for plaudits or eulogies, so we will deliver none today. In any case, no words of mine could add luster to the recognition which he received during his lifetime from his most distinguished peers. Membership of the Institut de Droit International, the first Hague Prize for International Law, and the Manlio Hudson Medal of the American Society of International Law. When he received that medal, the then President of the International Court of Justice informed those present that no member of the court would ever dare to suggest any procedural step without first looking to see what Rosanne had said on the matter. The citation which accompanied the award of the Hague Prize and Malcolm Shaw's beautiful essay in the booklet distributed today detail Shabtai's achievements. Following his death just over a year ago, his obituary in the Times of London put him at the very peak of international lawyers. Few would dispute that assessment, and I'm glad to say that there's reason to believe that the anonymous obituarist is in the hall with us today. Shabtai had a knack of doing the right thing in the right place. In New York City, he drank bourbon Manhattan with a twist, not an olive, and straight up, not on the rocks. In Cairo, at the end of the Second World War, when his fellow servicemen were indulging in what's euphemistically called rest and relaxation, Shabtai was at Cairo University learning Arabic. When he was visiting professor at the University of Amsterdam, despite a very full teaching load, he spent countless hours in the archives of the Sephardi Jewish community, establishing the exact lines of his descent from the Fonseca family, Iberian Jews who'd fled persecution and attained asylum in Amsterdam. When he was in Scheveningen, he ate sliptongages, and when he was in The Hague, he did international law. Here in The Hague, and in particular within these very grounds, Shabtai's brilliance was best displayed, and here more than anywhere were his qualities understood and celebrated. Understood and celebrated with great affection by generation after generation of judges, registrars, librarians, clients from several different countries, publishers, academics, and Israeli diplomats. Of those who knew him, who doesn't have a story to tell about Shabtai? But perhaps pride of place should go to the young. Shabtai was never too busy to engage with students and up-and-coming academics, irrespective of where they came from. And his general course at the Hague Academy in 2001 was a huge success. A brief quote from a letter written recently by a young Chinese scholar is representative of the feelings of many. I have a great admiration for Rosen, so it was a great regret that I never managed to see him. But we had emailed each other quite a bit on the ICJ cases. Sometimes he gave me comments on my draft papers. I learned a great deal from his works and from his messages. He was also the first one to alert me that I was quoted by a judge in the ICJ. It made me feel good to receive such a message from him. That was the Shabtai Rosen alerting service at its very best. Michel de Montaigne, in introducing an anthology which he had compiled, wrote, I, quoting it in English, I have gathered a posy 
of other men's flowers and only the thread that binds them is my own. The work of a publisher is not unlike that of an anthologist and I know that I speak for many of my erstwhile colleagues as well as the current generation at Martinus Nyhoff when I say that in our bouquet of writers Shabtai was the pick of the bunch. We admired him for his erudition, his integrity and his energy. We respected him for his courtesy, his fairness and his decency. And we loved him for his warmth, his generosity, his loyalty and for his quirkiness. We miss him greatly. And now we move on to another erudite and lovable man. Malcolm Shaw is currently Senior Fellow at the Lauterpacht Centre at Cambridge University and a busy practitioner. His career to date has been characterised by a creative and innovative approach to university education and research and his renowned and much translated textbook quite possibly makes him the most widely read international law writer ever. Welcome. We were delighted that you accepted our invitation to deliver this first Shabtai Rosen Memorial Lecture. The floor is yours. Members of the, the podium, I'm not quite sure how else to, to describe everyone here. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it is quite daunting to be standing here in front of a distinguished audience such as this. I would frankly much rather be sitting there listening to you speaking. Um, I'm very grateful that so many distinguished people are here in this audience. Uh, I'm very much in awe of most of you here. Um, I, I'm not going to name, name you all, but um, you would excuse me if I mention in particular the President and past President of the International Court and the recently re-elected President of the Yugoslav Tribunal. It's a great honour to me to have such a distinguished group of people here. Thank you also to the Israeli Embassy, to Brill and to the Rosen family for uh, enabling this memorial to take place uh, and for inviting uh, me to deliver the first memorial lecture. Thanks in, thanks in particular to Alan Stevens who with his usual good grace, humour and superb organising ability has pulled it all together so very well. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to attempt a lecture on the peaceful settlement of disputes, paradigms, plurality, plurality would help if I could speak, and policy. Just as society reveals itself through physical means, such as magnific magnificent soaring churches, ornate mosques, so will it also display its spirit through its social, economic, political and legal structures. As international society becomes more complex, integrated and comprehensive, so will its methods for resolving disputes become more developed and sophisticated. Constructs, processes and mechanisms are but a reflection of underlying economic, social and political realities, hopes and pressures and the ways in which international society seeks to regulate the use of force and deal with the underlying disputes is reflective of the nature of that society. 
The aim in this lecture is to examine briefly and in three sections where I think we are today. The first section looks at the structure of the international community. The second section looks at the growing diversity of prescription. And the final section will look at the interplay of law and politics in dispute resolution. There are, of course, some preliminary questions. The relationship between the rules for the legitimate use of force and the principles of peaceful settlement reflect two sides of the same coin, and that coin is at the sharp end of international law. No legal system can flourish upon a basis of chaos, disorder and turmoil. Certain conditions are required, and prime amongst them is a certain level of order and belief in that order. Perhaps all that is really required is the absence of disorder. However, some systemic acceptance of foundational principles appears essential. What those foundational principles for international society may be varies from era to era, but the very concept of an international community would be meaningless without some sense of a shared destiny and shared ways of doing things. Perhaps one of the key questions underpinning the role and nature of peaceful settlement is whether the end result of the process engaged in is simply the end of the conflict or whether the settlement itself has to be essentially a restatement of principles of international law. Is peaceful settlement simply pragmatic or is it teleological? Both these terms are loaded, but it is a live issue, not just in theoretical discourse, but in practice. Peaceful settlement is a process seeking to mitigate contradictory claims in a way consistent with the values of international society. It imports consideration of legal rules, <coughs> excuse me, plus a knowledge of and sensitivity towards contextual concerns. Peaceful settlement, in addition, should in principle extend beyond the immediate dousing of the fire to some form of community-accepted technique for preventing a repetition of the situation. Peaceful settlement requires thus an appreciation of context, forms and policy. I, I turn now to what I've termed paradigms. International law now constitutes a globalised system of rules and principles governing relationships between subjects of and participants in what may be termed the international political system. The escalating density and complex nature of the world, political, economic and legal mechanisms, structures and arrangements is reflected in the increasing complexity of international law. Delving ever deeper into domestic legal systems, regulating more and more substantive areas and horizontally stretching to different types of entities, international law is becoming increasingly difficult to quantify and qualify. Its sense of unity is increasingly stretched many ways, but the fabric still holds. The advantage of seeing international law as a complex of relationships is that the system is recognised as one in which a variety of contending pressures interact and as one in which choices continually need to be made. Seeing international law simply as a collection of legal rules is akin to defining icebergs in the light solely of the tips appearing above the sea. 
seeing law as a process of decision-making enlarges the screen, but perhaps only in a vertical sense, that is, with regard to the way in which law is made and interpreted, and not how all the relevant factors interact at the horizontal level. Of course, international law is a system of legal rules that imposes obligations. And of course, the way in which law is made and interpreted is very important. Nevertheless, seeing international law through the prism of ongoing and evolving interactions as adjustments have to be made continually in order to remain relevant reminds us that the system is enduring, complex and relative to the pressures facing it. One of many examples may be briefly given here. The development of the right of self-determination in international law, one of the key formative movements of modern international law perhaps, cannot be explained outside of the context of the massive post-war shifts and changing relationships in economic, social and political power which convinced the European powers of the impossibility of the continuation of colonial domination. Further, this principle cannot be understood without an appreciation of the Holocaust and its consequences, impelling a re-engineering of the previous focus of international law upon the individual solely as an appendage of the state. Human rights, individual and collective, are now not far from the very centre of international concern. We are now seeing in the Middle East the effects of the globalisation of human rights and I believe the end of the myth that such rights are only for Western states. However, the complex of relationships which explain, define and mould the law themselves take place within a certain spatial and temporal framework. That framework may be termed a paradigm, by which I mean simply a basic conceptual model that may be taken as a political legal structure for a particular time, albeit imprecisely defined, but nonetheless critical. The advantage of such approach is that it enables a broader than usual perception of the nature and role of international law seen within its political, social and economic context rather than as an isolated phenomenon existing, as it were, all alone, free from outside influence or stimulus. This is important in the particular environment of dispute settlement. A paradigmatic approach facilitates an understanding of the importance of international law and leads to a realistic and thus workable appreciation of its critical function within the machinery of international society, no matter how severe its failures and its failings. This does not mean that international law is submerged within other disciplines or that an understanding of its particular nature and role is to be minimised. On the contrary, a pragmatic appreciation of what it does do and can do is necessary in order to appreciate and assist in its evolution. The international legal system is indeed discrete with, it, with its own rules, processes and personality. But it does not exist on its own. It functions and subsists within a larger entity, the international political order. This order will reflect contemporary political features and will in turn impact upon the nature and development of international law. The concept of legitimacy forms the link between this order and the legal system 
and is critical in imbuing the normative system with authority and acceptability, although not as such legality. There is no absolute notion of legitimacy. It is contingent in the sense that it depends upon the context out of which it emerges. Tom Frank brilliantly analysed legitimacy in terms of compliance pull exerted upon those addressed by the proposition or institution in question. Legitimacy explains why individuals and indeed nations obey rules. Frank related legitimacy ultimately to a sense of community. Legitimacy relates to fundamental conceptions in any given society and mitigates force as the bond of such societies. The notion of community is therefore of essence in defining legitimacy. For international law, the nature of the international community has been a complex notion with some, but only some, resemblance to a community in a domestic jurisdictional sense. It is a cliché to say that the nature of the international community has radically changed over the centuries. Each paradigm will involve patterns of interaction between the members of the community which will produce its own array of norms and institutions and ways of behaving. Each model will engender certain legitimating principles that will in turn impact upon legal rules reinforcing or changing them. The start, or perhaps more correctly, the consolidation of the interstate system may be traced to the Peace of Westphalia, 1648. This marked the demise of the dominance of the Christian-Holy Roman Empire of medieval Europe, a model which had been under some challenge. The Church, for example, as Nussbaum pointed out, developed a comprehensive legal order that was not international but supranational producing rules that were, in his words, more coercive than those produced by contemporary international law. Side by side with the Pope bestrode the Emperor, who represented supreme and universal authority in the Western world. Thus this period of empire, and it is replicated elsewhere in the world, dictated that peaceful settlement of disputes took place within a constitutional environment of superior authority seeking to impose an element of order and consistency within the particular order. As far as external regulation was concerned, this was very restricted with the focus being upon war. <clears throat> the Westphalia paradigm was marked by the emphasis placed upon territorial authority and effective control and the resulting dichotomy between what happened internally and externally. The concept of the sovereign equality of states can be regarded as the key legitimating principle of this period, derived from the newly accepted political configuration of that time. This in turn generated a series of accepted rules and practices, ranging from state responsibility to the supremacy of domestic jurisdiction and the prohibition on interference in domestic affairs. In terms of peaceful settlement, the Westphalia paradigm evolved into a system of cooperating and competing sovereign states, underpinned by the principle of the balance of power. This principle, developed as an aid to the interstate interplay of power, 
ensuring that no one power could undermine the multi-sovereign state order. But it began to manifest elements of collective legitimacy as ad hoc meetings of the great powers agreed to the independence of new states, to territorial realignments, or established principles to regulate the scramble for Africa in a way that would minimise conflict between the European colonising states. Such conduct illustrates the gradual institutionalisation of a form of new legitimation. The great conferences and congresses of Utrecht, Vienna, Berlin and Versailles come to mind. The changes that occurred as a consequence of the First World War impacted, of course, upon the development of international law. The paradigm changed. International institutions came into their own, into their own in a systemic fashion. It allowed for the establishment of rules thereafter without the necessity for consent at each stage. The League of Nations was accompanied by the establishment of the Permanent Court of International Justice with a uniquely wide jurisdiction for the time and the creation of the International Labour Organisation with its characteristic and unusual tripartite authority structure. But more than that, new principles began to emerge impelled by the political philosophy of US President Wilson, which itself drew heavily upon the constitutional principles of the US, the then emerging great power. Prime amongst these was the notion of self-determination, a key concept in helping to determine boundaries in Central and Eastern Europe upon the demise of the Austro-Hungarian, Russian and Ottoman empires, and in generating a special minorities regime for the successor states of those empires whose independence was not attainable and in formulating the mandate system for the colonial territories of the defeated powers whereby colonialism was not simply replaced by colonialism but by a rather likely League of Nations supervised sacred trust of civilization. This amelioration of the crude interstate system of the earlier model continued after 1945 with the establishment of the United Nations. This change gradually evolved into a system which changed the balance between matters essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of states and matters which could be debated and acted upon by the international community through the UN. One of the purposes of the organisation is to bring about by peaceful means and in conformity with the principles of justice and international law, adjustment or settlement of international disputes or situations which might lead to a breach of the peace. But the post-modern paradigm has further widened and deepened the institutionalisation of international society. The range of subjects, active participants and actors in the international system now includes individuals, minorities, indigenous peoples, international organisations, non-governmental non organisations and multinational corporations, not to mention other kinds of non-state actors. The range of substantive topics in which such actors have a stake now includes international trade law, international humanitarian law, human rights law and environmental law. The vastly increased range of participants, actors and subjects of the international legal system has tremendous implications for the development of new rules and indeed the interpretation of existing ones and the consequences for dispute settlement have also been significant. 
Let me give you just a couple of examples. First, in terms of the evolution of law, one may point to the Pulp Mills case, where the court recognised, the international court, recognised environmental impact assessment as a practice that had become an obligation of general international law. And the court's decision contributed to the development of the definitions of sustainable development, equitable and reasonable use of shared transboundary watercourses. This has been supplemented slightly more recently by the very first advisory opinion of the Seabed Disputes Chamber of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, according to which the treaty obligation to ensure was interpreted, interpreted as an obligation of conduct rather than a result. And this is perhaps analogous to the obligation of due diligence and conduct referred to by the International Court in the Pulp Mills case. Secondly, there is the Abye arbitration between Sudan and the then southern region of that country over the border between them. To all intents and purposes, this was treated as, it, as if it were a full interstate arbitration and the rules that applied were those of international law. Thirdly, one may note the establishment of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon and its decision earlier this year interpreting the applicable Lebanese law in terms of international law. And finally, the Kiobel case currently before the US Supreme Court which raises the question as to whether international corporations can be liable for complicity in the alleged human rights violations of the state in which they have been operating. This is not to mention the rise of the international criminal tribunals and court extending the implementation of the responsibilities of individuals plus the fascinating hybrid courts and indeed the dispute settlement institutions of international trade and commercial law placing corporations and states upon the same level. There are continual dramatic developments here. Most recently the Aberclat arbitration decision which has, held, which has held that ICSID arbitrators have the jurisdiction to hear mass claims brought by a class of 60,000 bondholders of defaulted Argentine debt, alleging breach of the 1990 Italy-Argentina Bilateral Investment Treaty. The disruptive consequence of changing paradigms is to some extent mitigated by the principle of intertemporal law according to which rights and claims are examined in the light of the law obtaining at the time of their creation and by the principle of the critical date which works to similar effect. This new paradigm thus is more flexible, less formal, more cross-cutting and with deeper implications for the international law stroke domestic law relationship than ever before. With the key legitimating principles of unity and integration leading to advanced focus upon inter alia human rights, both internationally and internally. The postmodern kaleidoscope of activities and actors inevitably requires a system of dispute resolution that matches. The basic interstate model plainly does not suffice to meet, to meet all such globalised needs. The paradigm has changed, the system shifts. The proliferation of participants in the international order necessitates dispute resolution measures that reflect their interests and needs and not just those of their national states. We now have a real explosion of, mechanism, of mechanisms, as we have noted, 
Accordingly, we are now in an environment not of a paucity of international law and practice, but an embrasse de richesse. This is not a reproach, it is an opportunity. The role of dispute settlement has shifted in the contemporary environment. The postmodern paradigm requires, above all, flexibility, speed and focus. The demands of modern life have changed since the days when news took weeks or days to arrive at the capitals of the powers. New information is instantaneously distributed and widely diffused. It is not restricted to elites. Challenges arise more quickly than ever and have to be met more quickly than ever. Time is money. Time is also lives saved or lost. Current events demonstrate this. International law has long accepted that an array of techniques may be used in order to reach a peaceful settlement. Article 33 of the UN Charter, referring without hierarchy to negotiations, inquiry, mediation, conciliation, arbitration, judicial settlement, resort to regional agencies, and any other um, peaceful methods the states decide upon. I, I do not propose to detail each of these methodologies, but I do want to point to at this stage a significant phenomenon which underlines some of the themes referred to earlier. And that is the increasing use of a complex or bundle of techniques being used to seek to resolve a dispute. A good example of this is afforded by the successful settlement of the Cameroon-Nigeria boundary dispute, which essentially, though not exclusively, focused upon the Bukasi Peninsula in which a significant number of Nigerians lived. The court held that this area was under Cameroonian sovereignty. Even prior to the court's decision, the UN Secretary General had gathered together the presidents of the two states. After the court's decision, the parties set up a mixed commission to implement it, chaired by the Secretary General's special representative. After further tripartite summits, the parties reached a formal agreement, the so-called Green Tree Agreement, in 2006, recognising the boundary between the two countries as delineated by the court, and committed themselves to continuing the process of implementation. The agreement specifically provided for the handing over of the peninsula to Cameroon, as required, but also and importantly provided for the good treatment of Nigerian nationals in the transferred territory. The agreement also provided for a two-stage transitional period during, during which Bukasi would have a special status. For the first two years, Cameroon agreed to allow Nigeria to keep its civil administration and the police force for the maintenance of law and order. At the end of this period, Niger Nigeria would withdraw its administration and its police force and Cameroon would take over administration. But Cameroon also agreed to apply a special transitional regime for five years during which, for example, Cameroon would facilitate the exercise of the rights of Nigerian nationals living in the zone and access by Nigerian civil authorities to the Nigerian population living in the zone. At the end of the transitional regime, full rights of sovereignty over the zone would go to Cameroon. But importantly, a follow-up committee was established to monitor the agreement consisting of the parties, the UN, and the witness, statement, witness states to the agreement, being the UK, the US, France, and Germany. 
Nigeria withdrew its armed forces from Bokassi in August 2006 and the ceremony marking the formal transfer of, of authority took place indeed two years later. A mixed commission has met for several years with UN support to demarcate the rest of the boundary and I understand that this process is due to be completed next year. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon correctly summarised the agreement as it had been implemented as the embodiment of an innovative approach to conflict resolution. It stands as a model of the integrated multi-mechanism approach to dispute, to dispute settlement that the modern international community needs. This plurality, plurality or multi-technique methodology is to some extent reflected in another dimension by the ad approach adopted by the court to relevant but discrete material. For example, in the Diallo case, the International Court carefully analysed the meaning of the provisions of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the African Charter on Human and People's Rights with regard to the expulsion of aliens. But what is particularly interesting for present purposes is the consideration given to the case law of the relevant bodies. The court stated with regard to the Human Rights Committee that although the court is in no way obliged in the exercise of its judicial functions to model its own interpretation of the covenant on that of the committee, it believes that it should ascribe great weight to the interpretation adopted by this independent body that was established specifically to supervise the application of that treaty. The point here, the court continues, is to achieve the necessary clarity and the essential consistency of international law as well as legal security. And the court made similar comments with regard to the organs of the uh, African Charter. This talks also to what are now termed the fragmentation of international law, a term which is unduly pessimistic and essentially inaccurate, and the proliferation of courts and tribunals about which a little more later. Thus the court will seek the necessary clarity and the essential consistency of international law and will do this by taking into account the views of those organs especially tasked with interpretation of the relevant provision. Of course the court is not bound by the approaches of other organs but that is not the point. The point is rather that it feels it is incumbent upon it to consider them seriously in the process of decision making. Thus in terms of the increasing sources of international law, the court sees itself as having a role in the coordination of, perten of pertinent principles, while with regard to the proliferation of organs question, the court will as a matter of principle consider seriously the work of such organs. Another example for ex is the Provisional Measures Order of the 18th of July this year in the request for interpretation of the Temple Judgment where the court expressly referred to the Security Council's support for ASEAN peaceful settlement and the failed initiative of the chair of that organ for placing observers along the boundary. The proliferation of judicial organs on the international and regional level has been one characteristic of recent decades, as Shabda Rosen pointed out in his Hague lectures. 
It has also reflected the increasing scope and utilisation of international law on the one hand and an increasing sense of the value of resolving disputes by impartial third-party mechanisms on the other. It is unclear how the dramatic proliferation of courts and tribunals and other relevant organs may impinge upon the work of the International Court in the long run. Some take the view that proliferation will lead to inconsistency and confusion, others that it underlines the vigour and relevance of international law in an era of globalisation. Evidence to date suggests to me the latter rather than the former. Inconsistency may sometimes flow from the subject matter of the dispute or the di different functions of the courts in question, but it is not necessarily fatal to the development of international law. The special position of the International Court as the principal judicial organ of the UN, a term yet to be fully defined and whose reach has yet to be determined, and as the preeminent interstate forum, has led some to suggest a referral or consultative role for it, enabling it to advise other courts and tribunals. While it is difficult to see this as a realistic or practical project in purely formal terms, <coughs> one can point to the increasing cooperation between the International Court and other judicial bodies, and the increasing awareness by all relevant courts, tribunals and organs of each other's work. Beyond that, one may discern an increasing sense by the International Court of its own central and unique role in forging what, is, what it has termed the necessary clarity and the essential consistency of international law. Another aspect of plurality is the increasingly diverse kinds of law. Classic public international law rules now jostle with rules emerging from an increasing range of supra-domestic legal systems, whether transnational or regional. Inter interstate relations are now supplemented with those between sub-state institutions and organisations, and indeed with informal but influential networks. The development of discrete sections of international law dealing with human rights, environment, trade and health, for example, widen the scope and deepen the challenges faced by the international legal system. The contemporary focus upon Lex Specialis is a symptom of all of this and one of the most interesting questions that lie before the international court and other courts being the precise relationship between the general and the particular. Cases such as the construction of a wall advisory opinion and the Congo-Uganda uh, case raise the important question of the relationship between human rights and international humanitarian law and the apparent shift from, exclu from exclusive to complementary functions. The last word has yet to be said on this. Another aspect of the problem is the hierarchical dimension. Leaving aside complex issues as to the identification and scope of Jus Coggins' norms and the meaning of Erga Omne's obligations, recent important cases have focused upon the relationship between UN Security Council resolutions, Article 103 of the Charter, and relevant legal orders, and the Cardi case between the, before the European Union, and the Algeda case between the British Courts and the European Court of Human Rights, uh, reflect this. That international law and politics are intertwined is to state the obvious. 
The two are inexorably linked. Law cannot be understood without a knowledge of the relevant non-legal background. Legal institutions are, in addition, often expressly subordinate to political bodies. The process of appointing judges is inevitably tinged to a greater or lesser extent with politics. The institution of the ad hoc judge on the International Court reflects perhaps the need to ensure that the states in contentious proceedings feel that they have an equal opportunity to state their case fully before the court. Courts may indeed be created to fulfil a political purpose or need, or indeed as part of, of an overall political settlement, while states may introduce cases for an essentially political reason, that is, to resolve the dispute, not necessarily to win it. In point of fact, political factors cannot but be intertwined with questions of law. At one, in, at one level, indeed, they confer legitimacy. The International Court has noted that while political aspects may be present in any, in any legal dispute brought before it, the Court was only concerned to establish that the dispute in question was a legal dispute in the sense of being able to be settled by the application of principles and rules of international law. The Court has taken the view that its task, and I quote from the Congo-Uganda case, must be to respond on the basis of international law to the particular legal dispute brought before it. As it interprets and applies the law, it will be mindful of context, but its task cannot go beyond that. This mindfulness of context is an interesting point, and it should encompass a sensitivity to the points being argued and the, and the motivations which may lie behind such legal points as well as an appreciation of the strictly legal setting. It is often underestimated how important a solicitous and understanding awareness of the totality of the situation by the court may be within a particular political environment without necessarily detracting from the legal argumentation or legal decision. The fact that the same general political situation may come before different organs of the UN has raised the problem of concurrent jurisdiction. The court, however, has been consistently and correctly clear that the fact that the issue before the court is also the subject of active negotiations elsewhere will not detract from its competence or the exercise of its judicial function. There is here, however, a critical and unresolved point for the international legal system. Is the aim of peaceful settlement the resolution of a dispute to call, or is it the, uh, the aim to implement pertinent rules of international law to call? In particular situations, states will demand a resolution in strict accordance with international legal principles alone, while in other situations, states may widen the prescription to include relevant political considerations. From the point of view of dispute resolution, any given settlement may include elements that would not be under consideration were the process to be limited to legal factors alone. A dispute between two states on a given problem may indeed only be resolved by one state giving way on a completely separate issue in order to, accept, in order to secure an acceptable result for the matter at hand. It is, if you like, in many ways, the converse of countermeasures. More complex and controversial even 
is the bundle of issues dealing with the settlement of civil wars or civil contact, uh, conflicts. Should peace and, for example, the transition to democracy be achieved by foregoing legitimate legal processes so that controversial political leaders benefit by an amnesty and avoid close judicial scrutiny? Many states have chosen this path. But it is interesting how many of these arrangements are unstable and are revised after time. Chile and Argentina are pointed examples of this. Again, are truth and reconciliation commissions an acceptable alternative or indeed a form of local community justice in a rather hurried form? What may work in one country may not work in others. Peace and law are not always easy bedfellows. Further, to what extent should peace be achieved on the basis of a renunciation of strongly held rights. International law is ambivalent here. Peace and justice are the aims of the UN and the international community, but not always equally attainable. Some may argue that the establishment of a legal process may deter peace or create expectations and tensions that exacerbate delicate situations. Uganda and the ICC and Lebanon perhaps come to mind. Of particular interest is the relationship between the International Court and the UN political bodies. The meaning and scope of the Charter provision that the Court is the principal judicial organ of the UN has yet to be fully explored by either the Court or the UN. We have hints in the Lockerbie case of one possible line of evolution, but one should rightly expect caution and circumspection. This is not the equivalent of judicial review in constitutional matters in domestic courts. The International Court works within a totally different environment. The paradigm is different, and thus also the legitimacy and the legality of such considerations. More productive, perhaps, than a pseudo-constitutional confrontation with the Security Council might be closer examination of the potentialities of the role of the Court within the legal complex of rules and participants. In this context, one may note the suggestions that power to request advisory opinions to be given to the UN Secretary General and to, perhaps to states and national courts, while the possibility of permitting international organisations to become parties to contentious proceedings has also been raised. There is one further issue. It is believed that the appearance of a long reach of the court is an increasingly important issue. This is an approach whereby the court may become engaged in prescriptive activities concerning future behaviour. It is, if you like, one further example of the confluence of dispute settlement techniques. Let me take an example or two. In the Cameroon-Nigeria case, the court tackled head-on the sensitivities of the issue and declared in relation to the Bukasi Peninsula and Lake Chad regions containing significant, if not overwhelmingly, Nigerian populations, that the implementation of the present judgment will afford the parties a beneficial opportunity to cooperate in the interests of the population concerned. The court used the device of referring to the commitment of the Cameroon agent during oral pleadings by stating in a paragraph of the, of the dispositif itself that it takes note of the commitment undertaken by the Republic of Cameroon at the hearing that 
faithful to its traditional policy of hospitality and tolerance, it will continue to afford protection to Nigerians living in the relevant areas. It may very well be that this, by this procedure, the commitment given by Cameroon constitutes a binding obligation and one that may be enforceable by the court in future proceedings should the situation so require. The more proactive approach of the court may also be seen in the recent provisional measures order in the request for an interpretation of the temple judgment. We are faced with a request from Cambodia that the court order Thailand to withdraw its forces from those parts of Cambodian territory and the area of the temple, in fact ordered both parties to immediately withdraw their military personnel currently present in the provisional demilitarized zone as defined in the order and to refrain from any military presence within that zone. This not only required the parties to withdraw from the territory in dispute but also from territory indisputably under their own sovereignty. This order may also be seen together with the Costa Rica-Nicaragua order earlier this year as demonstrating a more prescriptive approach than was the case in earlier decades. Further, the court ordered both parties to continue the cooperation which they had entered into within ASEAN and in particular to allow the observers appointed by that organisation to have access to the provisional demilitarised zone. Thus, to conclude, paradigms enable us to see the law and the legal system as a constituent part of a thriving, broader entity with continually evolving relationships, challenges and trials. It demonstrates how and why the law moves along. It speaks of the critical elements of predictability and stability. This is not to say that states are not still the most important elements of the system nor indeed to belittle the role of consent in jurisdiction. But the significance of the Security Council established ICTY and ICTR and the tendency of courts to develop way beyond the expectations of the state creating them cannot be ignored. The issue of plurality reflects the increasing dynamism, integration and cross-cutting nature of the system while the question of policy demonstrating the importance of the perception of the boundary between law and politics and the extent to which the two disciplines are related. Those of us lucky enough to be involved both in the academic and the professional side of international law would do well not to overlook what the point of it all is. International law and dispute settlement as a critical part of it is a way of getting things done. It oils the wheels of cooperation. It seeks to mitigate conflict and conf confrontation. If human beings are social, so are states and all the other participants in the system. Isolation is not an option. But this is all to a purpose. And that purpose, perhaps, was defined by Chateau Rosen in his speech accepting the Hague Prize on the 18th of June, 2004. It is the biblical injunction Justice, justice, shalt thou pursue. Thank you.